when we started, a lot of the stuff that we are doing now wasn't possible. We needed a malting company and farmers were willing to work on this stuff with us. You can't do it all in a vacuum. To me, that's the most authentic way for us to make whiskey in America is for us to not follow the Scottish model exactly. It's to try to make a single malt that is really representative of where you are in America, whether that's the Pacific Northwest or New England or the Southwest or anywhere in between. Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Chabal, and joining me today is Matt Hoffman, the master distiller behind Westland, which is one of America's most exciting new distilleries. We'll talk American single malt whiskey in just a moment, but first, a thought. It wasn't until I started learning more about single malt whiskey that I realized just how limited a set of raw materials most distillers have to work with. As Matt mentions in our interview, there are only a couple of strains of barley, a couple of kinds of oak, and maybe a few different kinds of peat. That distillers in Scotland and elsewhere have been able to create such distinct styles from those limited materials is a testament to their ingenuity and the profound effect that small initial differences can have. Yet the work being done by Westland and other pioneering single malt producers here in the U.S. and worldwide is serving to open up vast new continents of possibility. Who knows how some of these heritage strains of barley will perform in whiskey, or whether Garyana oak will find a permanent place alongside the other oak species in whiskey production, But the willingness to explore these and other components, instead of sticking with what's always been done, is revolutionary and thrilling. As single malt has emerged from Scotland, and distillers the world over have become enamored with it, we as consumers have been treated to a tremendous expansion of the possibilities. If Westland and others can add new strands of barley, oak, and peat to the equation, we'll all stand to benefit. Joining me today on Disgorged is Matt Hoffman. He is the master distiller at Westland Distillery, which is the producer of uh, critically acclaimed single malt whiskeys right here in Seattle. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Happy to be here. Excellent. So uh, let's start with, I think, a, a kind of a simple but interesting question. Where, where in, along the way did you get sort of most interested in single malt whiskey? Was there a, was there a specific one that you tried that, that sort of set you down this path, or, or how did it happen? It's kind of hard to say. It's always been really a, a journey of, of going from one stage to the next. So to try to pinpoint any one specific place is hard, but there's a couple of, of sources of inspiration. I mean, and really when I started kind of almost the humbleness of single malt is a really fascinating part of it, that it comes from this humble little grain called barley. And then there's, there's very few, uh, other ingredients in it. So starting from that point, how do you make this thing that is so complex and so revered with just a few ingredients? That was always a big part of it, but then really, you know, making single malt whiskey is one thing, but when I went out to Isla the first time, uh, that was a huge moment for me. Cause you know, I'm going out there. It was, uh, I think March. Um, so it's, it's, you know, winter time, it's cold land on the, the runway and there's peat bogs all around you. And we stayed at this little inn, um, you know, with, with peat burning inside of the stove, um, at this little bed and breakfast. And you really feel like you're in a cottage up against the elements and you're drinking peated whiskey. And there's a real, sense of place that came with that experience and that really kind of I think hooked it for me and that's influenced a lot of the style of whiskey that we try to pursue which is 
to make a whiskey that has a real sense of place attached to the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And what is it about single malt that allows for that in a way that maybe other forms of whiskey don't? Well, I think to be to be honest with you, I think the that other forms of whiskey uh, could allow it uh, in the same way that single malt could. It's just that most producers of whiskey just kind of choose to not accept it, which is really uh, too bad. I mean, the thing about whiskey, um, which is so different even from other spirits, but especially from things like wine and beer, is that there's no connection anymore to um, you know to the agriculture, to where things. Uh, to where things are grown and how it relates to the distillery. Um, I mean, for us, certainly the barley, 80% of the barley we use year round comes from Washington state. Um, and we're exploring different terroirs within Washington state, different varietals that are suited specifically for certain climates in Washington state. Then we've got the local, uh, peat that we began using last year. And then the local Oak, of course, for, uh, for our Gariana release. Um, and that style of thinking is, is, definitely new to this business. Um, but if you ask a winemaker, you know, they would, they would kind of always think that way. You know, they're, they're so connected to the land and where things come from. Um, but in whiskey, it's just, it's viewed more industrially. And I think that's, that's too bad because it leaves out a lot of possibility for something really beautiful to kind of take center stage. That's not, you know, the whiskey maker's hands. You're really letting a sense of place take center stage. Is it in some way, um, was it sort of when you guys were starting Westland, was it nerve wracking to step out of that kind of commodity grain model and, and really start thinking about we're going to work with locally sourced things or was, I mean, it sounds like that was sort of the point all along. Well, what's interesting about that is when we started, a lot of the stuff that we are doing now wasn't possible. Um, one of the things that we do now is using new varietals of barley. So this, you know, this would be equivalent to, you know, a Merlot versus a Cabernet Sauvignon versus a Pinot Noir grape. You know, that's, that's what we're talking about as far as varietals of barley. Um, and that hasn't really been done in Scotland at all, with very few exceptions. But when we started the business, that also wasn't really available to us either. We needed a malting company and farmers who were willing to work on this stuff with us. You can't do it all in a vacuum. Um, and so it's quite serendipitous that we happen to be in the same place at the same time as a company called Skagit Valley Malting, which is located an hour north of Seattle in the Skagit Valley, um, who are able to connect us to farmers and to the academics who are breeding new varietals of barley for the Pacific Northwest. Um, otherwise, what we're talking about doing, what we are doing you know, today, would not have really been possible. And we've tried to help drive that forward as much as we can. We have to be a great partner with those farmers. You know, when they when we say let's plant this new varietal of barley that's not really been grown at scale before, they're going to say, "Well, that's kind of risky for me." And we say, "Well, okay, we'll, you know, we'll buy it from you. We'll ensure that we buy it from you." Things like that. Um, so that's something we've had to grow and develop, and that process certainly continues. But then the rest of it, stylistically, the the desire to make, um, you know, a, an American single malt from the Pacific Northwest, where we really mean specifically those words when we started by using some roasted malts that brewers use and brewers yeasts and the different varieties of, of oak whether it's new american oak or quercus cariana we didn't know frankly whether people were going to accept that or whether people were going to say this doesn't taste like glenlivet therefore this this shouldn't you know be viewed as single malt but we really really found that 
most people out there, the vast, vast majority of people, understand what it is that we're trying to do. Does Westland American Oak taste different from Glenlivet? Yeah, of course it does. That's the point. It's an American single. It's not a Scottish copy. And uh, yeah, that was nerve-wracking for, for a little bit, um, but we're beyond that stage now, and that's been great to see. So to what extent from a distillation process um, is what you're doing similar to what's done, generally speaking, in Scotland? Because it's my sense that that while the raw ingredients might sort of obviously be a little bit different and, and more variable and obviously focused on sort of terroir, where, where, if anywhere, do you deviate from what's typically done in Scotland or other parts of the world with single malt? In our production process, there are very few um, dramatic changes to what would be considered standard procedure in Scotland. There's a lot of small things that we do, little steps that we take that we believe make a better new make spirit. We you know, call the spirit straight off of the still before it's gone into the cask. Um, so for the most part, it's, it's relatively straightforward. We do mashing very, very similar to how it was done in Scotland. I was trained in, in Scottish uh, whiskey making method um, production wise through Harriet Watt University. So Though I had that kind of technical education, the distillation is, is for the most part a relatively straightforward uh, double distillation setup. We have a slight variation on it compared to what is normal, but but by and large, you know, we're not rewriting the rule book here. We're, you know, allowing the, the raw ingredients to kind of uh, take center stage there. And so, you know, you, you talked a little bit about sort of learning um, learning distillation in Scotland Um what was what was that process like? How did you how did you get there? Yeah, so that's that process was uh, me being desperate for for any real education. I mean, I I had started reading whiskey textbooks from when I was you know fifteen. So and there's there's not very many of them. So got to a certain point where um, those obviously just don't do it anymore. Uh, I went through the Institute of Brewing and Distilling's um, certificate program in in distilling, and I did that. Um, that was through London, something you can do from abroad. Uh, we did that, uh, with the brewing and distilling Institute of brewing and distilling in London. And then looking for more, I found the, uh, international center for brewing and distilling through Harriet Watt university, which is in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's really the only program that teaches brewing, distilling and malting science at a level where you get a degree from it, either a postgraduate diploma degree, a master's degree, or a bachelor's of science degree. So I, I got into that um, and really, really enjoyed that process because that's it's the only school. So everybody who's, who's in production making single malt whiskey around the world is kind of in that school. Um, and so I've got great friends now you know, who live all over the world producing whiskey at pretty fantastic places that I can call on um, whenever. And then that's, that's been an awesome thing. Very cool. Uh, let's let's come back to this idea of sort of focusing on Northwest uh, raw materials, um, and and as you said, when you first sort of launched, that what a lot of the things that you're working with now uh, didn't exist or were only sort of um, speculative or or in the sort of experimental stages, and obviously some of them still are. What was the first piece of that puzzle? What was the first sort of really local, um, I guess maybe you'd say, sort of piece of terroir that that came into production? Well, it's easy to start off with something like, you know, the barley. That was always what drove us um, into this business, making single malt. Pacific Northwest is one of the best places to grow barley in the world. So that's that's kind of always been, you know, the 
the, the center post really for, for Westland. Um, that's what drives us to, to make single malt is because we believe that the Pacific Northwest should be making single malt. So we always had that from the beginning, but that barley, uh, a lot of what is grown um, is grown for the commodity market. So it's going to be relatively similar to the barley that grows, let's say, in uh, Idaho or Montana or North Dakota, the other kind of barley growing states um, in the U.S. So there's a couple of answers to that question. You know, one of these is the is the use of roasted malts, brewers malts. So we've got the huge uh, brewing influence in the Pacific Northwest. Um, some of our uh, malts, some of our roasted malts, come from uh, a local malting company, Great Western Malting Company, uh, down in Vancouver, Washington. Uh, but the other big piece of that, of course, is uh, is the Garyana oak, and that's that's been a really really exciting thing because that only grows in the Pacific Northwest. So the American oak that is used for all other types of whiskey around the world that grows in the eastern half of the U.S. But the Quercus Garyana oak tree, or Gary oak, as as it's called, uh, only grows in the Pacific Northwest from B.C. down through Washington State, Oregon, a little bit into Northern California. And so that's been a great thing to to work with. We filled our first casks of Gary Oak back in 2011, so really right away for us. Um, and that's been something that when we released it, you know, we were able to say, like, this is something that has a very, very distinctive sense of place to it because it can only grow here. It only does grow here. And even growing here, it only grows in a very small part of the Pacific Northwest. That's been an exciting thing to do. And since then, we've continue to develop that program um, and have begun the other programs with new varietals of barley and then the local peat. And with the Gary Oak, um, what do you, it's my understanding that working with it is challenging uh, maybe from a couple of different standpoints, including maybe just getting the actual oak made into barrels was, was a bit of a challenge. Like, like how, how difficult has it been for you to incorporate that into the, into the program? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a pretty challenging thing to work with. I mean, it's not just the, there's a lot of things, I guess, that we take for granted in the whiskey business. Um, one of those things is ready supplies of oak. Uh, so we use all air-dried oak uh, for our casks, uh, which is the opposite of that would be the kiln-dried oak that is commonly used for the bourbon industry, um, but is never used for the wine industry. And so we say we want oak that's been air-dried for two years. We call up our, our cooperage in Missouri who makes our American oak casks and we tell them what we need and, and they've got those stacks of it that's been available out there and we'll get those casks that year. And that's, you know, we don't have to go out and, and find those trees and air dry them ourselves. That is what we have to do with, with Gary Oak because there is no Gary Oak economy. It was kind of viewed almost as a trash wood for a long time. It's down to 5% of its former habitat. Um, a lot of people who, Basically, the places that it was growing are places that you wanted to farm or do something else. So a lot of that wood came down. And even the people who would leave those area areas wooded, they would put fir trees on it instead because they grow much faster and they'll give you much more money uh, per acre. So trying to find that Gary Oak and buy it and then air dry, you know, we have to air dry that Gary Oak for at least three years that process, we have to really be there from the beginning. It means we're out there in the woods, literally in the woods, <laughs> looking for, you know, Gary Oak logs with the Cooper that we work with, with um, the mill owners that um, that are out there who have to take it and then cut it and send it to us. It really is very much a, 
you know, a hand in hand process, just like I described with, with the barley. Um, and that's, that's interesting because it, it allows us an additional opportunity and that's to start sourcing this oak in a way that we would have wanted from the beginning if we could have done it with American oak. And let's say we can say exactly where that Gary Oak tree came from. We know its growing conditions. We know the climate, where it was growing, the soil type. And we can begin to get even more specific about learning what this Gary Oak species can do. So that doesn't even take into account the difficulty of working with it, of shaping it. It's harder to shape than Quercus alba, than American oak. Um, it's more brittle. Um, you know, the air drying process takes longer than than American oak, as I mentioned, three years instead of two for American oak. So it's it's much more difficult all around. But you know, that kind of makes it fun. <laughs> so maybe maybe now that you've had a chance to work with it. Um... Uh, for a little while now, as you mentioned, you sort of put, uh, you filled your first barrels in 2011. What would you say about the maybe the flavor profile? How does the the Gary Oak tend to manifest in a, in a finished whiskey? Well, that's something we are exploring now, and we'll continue to explore for a long time. There's we feel like there's some general kind of rules that we've discovered um, over the past uh, six years. So first of all, the kind of the comparison that I like to do between Gary Oak and uh, American oak. If, if American oak, if Quercus alba gives you caramel, coconut, generic baking spices, um, you know, vanilla, things like that, Garyana oak will give you all of that, but darker. So instead of caramel, it's going to be heavy molasses or like dark honey. Set of generic baking spices, it's going to be clove. Uh, there's a lot of really kind of dark fruitiness to it. Um, there's a smoky element to it, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, it's it's just really dark, spicy, sweet, smoky, these flavors that come through it. So it's totally, totally distinct, not only from American oak, but from any other white oak species in the world. Um, and then beyond that, the question is, okay, what happens when these flavor compounds that we get from Gary Oak start interacting with the rest of what makes the Westland house style, what it is. In other words, how does it interact with other typical single malt whiskey flavor notes? And that's what our Gariana series has been all about, our, our bottlings that we've done. So we're on uh, edition two this year. So the first edition was how do we explore what Gary Oak does with a lot of new American oak in the blend with some peated malt. Um, that was last year's 2016. Uh, you know, this year we said, okay, we learned something from that experience. What happens if we take these casks of Gary Oak, take that whiskey and blend it with whiskey that was in uh, very uh, lightly oaked used bourbon casks. So in other words, those casks should have uh, a much higher fruity element uh, to the whiskey. And what we get is this really cool effect of, of these Gary Oak flavor notes and these light fruity notes coming together into something that is totally new and distinct. And this is incredibly exciting for us as whiskey makers, and I'm sure it's exciting for consumers out there because this is like the first time that this is really being explored. You know, whiskey has been made for a long time and there's a lot of, you know, there's just a few species of oak actually that have been out there used to mature whiskey, Quercus alba, the American oak, some French oak, uh, Japanese oak for a little bit. So this is a pretty rare occurrence that a new oak kind of shows up on the whiskey scene and you get to really explore it in real time like we're doing. It's been a lot of fun. 
Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And and having had a chance to taste both the, the 2016 and 2017 offerings, it was uh, sort of side by side. It was interesting to see um, how, in a way, when whiskey that was aged in the Gary Oak was paired with, as you said, the sort of um, lighter, fruitier style, I, I almost felt like I got more of that dark uh, that dark baking spice and and you know molasses note than I did when it was paired with other kind of pretty str- like it something about the sort of I guess the more delicate nature of the rest of the whiskey it was blended with allowed that sort of those flavors to show through more. Yeah, that was what was really fun about this bottling is is the 2016 edition. What we did was that was paired with other casts that were big and full of flavor, lots of new American oak, you know, the really heavily peated stuff. It's bottled at 56.2% alcohol by volume. It was a big, you know, brash whiskey. And and this year, the whiskey was much more elegant because we had much less, we didn't have any peated malt in this year's expression because we wanted to let the Gary Oak phenolics, those kind of smoky, spicy notes, for those to stand out. And then we didn't use very many new American oak cast, we use more used bourbon cast this time. And then it was bottled at 50% alcohol by volume. So what you get is a more elegant whiskey. It's definitely not as in your face as as a whole compared to 2016. But you're right. I think the Gary Oak does stand out a little bit more because the other components of the blend are toned down compared to last year. It's a really cool um, thing to experience in your glass, This the intensity of the Gary Oak, but also in a way that is overall elegant throughout the whiskey um so stepping uh over to another sort of part one of your one of your projects um and a thing that uh that i'm in particular really interested in is uh the sort of exploration of peat and peat from um you know sort of washington peat bogs was that another thing that you were aware was out there or, or did that kind of did that just come to your attention because uh at some point when when you start making single malt whiskey inevitably the kind of conversation around peat happens well when we started you know it's just like um you know we looked for the the local barley and we looked for the local oak and managed to find somebody who could sell us casks uh made with local oak right away um and we found uh a lot of local peat actually there's quite a bit of peat in washington state um you know the same climate that is conducive uh to growing barley is also one that is conducive to peat bog formation um but that wasn't the problem. The problem was getting that peat and then getting it to the malt and smoking the barley in order to turn that into peated malt. We thought that was going to be easy. We called around to some malt houses and they said, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, some of it's kind of fair. They weren't going to build a smokehouse just for us, which is, you know, I suppose that's reasonable. But, um, but even the companies that did have smokehouses in the U.S. wouldn't do it. Uh, so that was – frustrating and it was only until um you know it wasn't until 2016 when we were able to finally make peated malt and actually the story behind that really is that we were we were kind of thinking about malting ourselves a little bit because we couldn't do uh the peated malt we couldn't do any of these new varietals of barley we wanted to tackle so if nobody else was going to do it for us then we were going to tackle it ourselves and then we went up to a conference up in the Skagit Valley sat down at a table with some guys and they said, hey, what do you guys do? I said, we make single malt whiskey. What about you guys? Well, we're starting a malting company. <laughs> and that was just just fantastic because I'm really glad that they started the malting company, not us. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, and that's been awesome. You know, working with the Skagit Valley malting guys has just been great because they're as passionate about malting as we are about making whiskey. 
So that's the first time really that, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that any malting company has made peated malt in the U.S. out of domestic peat, which is a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, so for us to be able to take that and run with it now, we've so last year I think we filled 70 casks of whiskey made from locally peated malt. Pretty exciting, and we'll continue to expand that program. Very cool. And and are you at this point? You're still just waiting to see what what that flavor profile is. Uh, is there anything that you? I mean, obviously, you know, even um, peat throughout Scotland uh, is not consistent. That you get obviously different kinds of expressions in. Um, even in um, even in fairly uh, close by regions, because the sort of the v- uh, vegetative content of the peat, I think, has a big impact on the inevitable flavor profile. Do you have any idea, anything that you think it's going to be uh, similar to, or are you really just waiting to see? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to say right at the moment. Um, we know that it's it's going to be different. The vegetation is different. So uh, on on Isla in Scotland, the peat composition there is mostly moss. And when moss breaks down into peat, you get more medicinal notes. Um, for the peated malt that we were using in place of the locally peated malt and still continue to use, um, stuff that we get from Scotland uh, coming from Baird's, uh, that's highland peat. And highland peat is more grassy, uh, which gives kind of a more um, woody note um, compared to the medicinal notes of just moss-based peat. But what we have in just the one peat bog that we work with uh, in Western Washington, to say nothing of any other bogs that might be out there. Um, not only do we have areas of peat and grasses, but we have uh, all sorts of different wild herbs. We've got this plant called Labrador tea, which is this hyper aromatic, um, kind of almost rosemary looking bush, which uh, creates all sorts of great oily citrus notes in the leaves. When that breaks down into peat, what is that going to give us? We've got wild uh, cranberries. We've got wild crab apples. There's all sorts of fun stuff. And this is just in this one bog. And, you know, for us to be able to explore, we could spend a lifetime. We'll spend a lifetime exploring all those different things. Um, and that's that's what we'll continue to do. What, what it means for um, the flavor profile, we're not totally sure. First and foremost, and this is very important, it's got to be good. You know, there's – you can burn peat, but if it tastes disgusting, then, then we're not going to use it and it won't be, you know – won't be relevant for us. Um, but we definitely think that there's something in there that we can call out and highlight as, as flavors of Pacific Northwest peat. I don't think we're quite there yet to be able to say exactly what those are, but I definitely think that's coming. Well, and it sounds like it might even be something that varies from uh, peat bog to peat bog that, that you might not get a consistent, a one consistent flavor, um, you know, from the very if you end up working with other bogs besides the the one that you've worked with so far like just with as with different strains of barley you might end up with different expressions um of northwest peat based on you know where in the northwest that peat comes from oh certainly i mean there's especially when you start looking at the vegetation that only grows in the pacific northwest or in north america in general relative to you know what is growing in scotland you know if the if the peat i imagine there will be differences in the peat just based off of moss um, derived peat. So there will already be that variation, but the real variation in the true sense of something that is going to be distinct from this region that Scotland could never have is when there are other things adding to the complexity of that peat plants that only grow in the Pacific Northwest. 
Cool. So this this actually leads me to, I think, an interesting question, which is that I know you guys have been at the forefront of sort of advocating for a legal category to delimit and define um, American single malt whiskey. What is that process like, and 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 where where do you stand, or where does that pro- where do you where does the the industry stand? Yeah, I mean that that process is. Uh complicated <laughs> that may be maybe longer than we want to get into right now but yeah yeah without getting well without getting into the politics of it all no, that too. it's uh basically what what we want is we want when people buy a bottle of american say malt whiskey we want people to get what they pay for um so what that means is um you know currently on the on a bottle of whiskey when you see the words american single malt whiskey those do not mean anything to the ttb um, which is the federal government arm that, that kind of monitors us. So we'd like to change that because we want those words to mean something. And those words, especially the words single malt whiskey, those do mean something uh, globally. You know, single, the, the term uh, single comes from the fact that it's produced at a single distillery. Malt means 100% malted barley. That's what it means in every country around the world, not just Scotland, but the other countries that are producing single malt whiskey as well. They've all stuck to that same definition and then the American part should be made in America. I mean, that's, it sounds pretty straightforward. And actually, that's kind of the point. What we want to do is we want to put in you know, a definition for American single malt where consumers are still getting, they're getting the real clarity that they need and that this is a single malt whiskey, which means that nobody's adding anything crazy to it. They're not trying to get around and, and be a snake oil salesman and, and put something in the bottle that doesn't match what their expectations are. But at the same time, allow it to be open enough that American single malt whiskeys can continue to innovate and deviate, frankly, from from Scotland. And that's to me, that's the most authentic way for us to make whiskey in America is for us to not follow the Scottish model exactly. It's to try to make a single malt that is really representative of where you are in America, whether that's the Pacific Northwest or New England or the Southwest or anywhere in between. There's a lot of variations in there. We want the structure to allow for people to still innovate and without naming names or or causing any waves is your sense that most people who are making single malt whiskey throughout the u.s share that sensibility is it is it a pretty commonly agreed upon principle that that terminology should be legally controlled yeah actually and we're we're totally transparent about it you can go onto the american single malt whiskey commission website so that's the group that we uh uh, formed with other American single malt whiskey producers to kind of put this uh, idea into action. So if you just go to americansinglemaltwhiskey.org, um, you can read about it. We want the whole process to be transparent, uh, which is, of course, different from our colleagues in, in Scotland. And um, we thought it was going to be more of a, a fight than it ended up being. And we all, you know, we kind of sat down with the expectation that this would take a long time and who knows if we'll ever get to a conclusion, but it took about 45 minutes <laughs> for us to all sit down and go, yeah, actually, this That's sounds... That's barely good. enough time for a glass of whiskey. Yeah. So, and that was, yeah, most of that time I spent drinking the whiskey. So, no, but it was, um, we now have more than 60 producers of American single malt signed up uh, to be members of the commission, which means they support the proposed definition. Um, everybody has a voice in what that proposed definition could be because it's not uh, written yet. Um we continue to attract more um, attention from distillers and, and also importantly from people who aren't producers. I mean, we want people downstream to be involved in this too, because this helps everybody in 
in retail when they know what kind of bottle this is. This is not a scotch. It's not a bourbon. You know, it's it's an American single malt. It's got its own category. We believe there are almost 100 producers of single malt whiskey in the United States. You know, they they should make sure that they know exactly what it is. And, and we've gotten a lot of support from uh, distributors, from retailers, from uh, people who run bars and restaurants. It's been a great thing. And, and all of that um, people can see online. It's pretty great. Very cool. Um, and then as far as any other sort of, I, I know you guys have been working on a number, you do a number of um, sort of one-offs or un, sort of unusual offerings. Uh, there's always the Pete Week that you guys do, I think, every year, um, sort of to expand beyond the core offerings that are always there. Um, or any of those, I guess I should say, any any of those experiments or one-offs, things that you ever envision making regularly, or do you really just kind of enjoy that they're, they're a one-off thing and that they then you move on to the next? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, when it comes to things like Beat Week, we recognize that the consistent house style that we are shooting for in all of our whiskeys is is balance. You know, we're not we're not on Isla. You know, we're not most of the time for our Westland Peated expression. We're not trying to make a copy of of an Isla single malt. Um, same thing with our Sherrywood. You know, we're not trying to be Macallan. That's not what we're trying to be, but it is fun every once in a while to kind of throw a celebration of this particular style of whiskey. I mean, peated whiskey has an immensely important place in the whiskey business. I mean, it is the origin. It's literally the origin point for all other styles of whiskey. So for us to to kind of do that as a, as a one-off thing every year as a tribute to peated whiskey and, and all that it stands for, and to throw a little party around it is is fun for us. It's a way for us to celebrate Peter Whiskey and how important it is. Very cool. What, one last question for you, which is uh, kind of a silly one, but uh, was there any ever any consideration when you were when you were sort of getting things started of uh, dropping the e in whiskey, or or were you committed to the American spelling? Ah, that's that's a great question. Um, no, committed very much to the American spelling. It is American single malt whiskey, and we really mean that. The E is important. It's a little thing, but, you know, Americans use an E in their whiskey spelling. We make American single malt, not Scottish whiskey. So it's whiskey with an E. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to exploring uh, much more of the terroir of the Pacific Northwest through uh, your single malts over the years. Yeah, happy to speak with you. Thanks again to Matt Hoffman, Master Distiller at Westland Distillery, for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Westland at westlanddistillery.com or on social media at Westland Whiskey, with an E, of course. As for me, I'm online at Disgorged Wine or on social media at Zjabal. That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks for listening to Disgorged, and cheers! Cheers!